Hey, you're listening to the audio version of Well Read with Justin Chapman. If you'd like to watch the video version, please go to youtube.com backslash C backslash Justin Chapman 15 or just search for Well Read with Justin Chapman in the YouTube search bar. Learn more at justindouglaschapman.com. Enjoy the show. Hey there. Welcome to Well Read with Justin Chapman. Thanks for being here. We just seem to be governing by crisis in the U.S. Congress. Not that that should be surprising. The jockeying we're seeing is actually Congress going back to a state of somewhat normal, both sides in a tug of war for influence over their agendas, rather than no legislative action due to one party's lopsided fealty to one man that we saw the last four years. But it's like, what do we expect? Voters are like, we're going to vote for a completely split government and then criticize politicians for not getting anything done or coming to any agreements. Democrats and Republicans played a game of chicken over the U.S. government's debt limit, which was a lot of fun. Democrats wanted Republicans to vote with them to raise the debt ceiling, just like Democrats voted with Republicans to do so after the Republicans' tax cut bill increased the debt. Much of this debt is from Trump and Republican policies of the last few years, much more so than Biden's. But Republicans, led by Moscow Mitch McConnell, went full hypocrites and said Democrats must raise the debt ceiling via reconciliation rather than regular order. It's unclear why Democrats refuse to raise the debt ceiling through reconciliation. They could just include it in the infrastructure reconciliation bill. But they drew a line in the sand, believing that Republicans would cave at the last minute because it would be catastrophic to the U.S. economy and to average Americans if the U.S. government defaults on its debt, possibly even causing a recession. This is all because McConnell wanted to bludgeon Democrats in the midterm elections next year by saying, look at how much the Democrats are spending, without, of course, mentioning that spending on all of these extremely popular programs that are going to improve the lives of countless Americans at a very difficult time in this world. McConnell thought Republicans wouldn't be blamed because Democrats have control of the White House and and both chambers of Congress. He knows he's a hypocrite, but he doesn't care as long as he doesn't pay a political price and he doesn't. Whatever it takes to accomplish his political goals, decency and fairness be damned. As Punchbowl News put it, McConnell is doing what he wants to do because he has the power to do it not because it's the right thing to do as a national political leader or as a steward of the Senate as an institution. Great guy, right? Also, as Punchbowl News put it, if the U.S. doesn't lift the debt ceiling and defaults just nine months after the bloody January 6th insurrection, it would further confirm for many here and abroad that the American experiment has run its course and they should look elsewhere for global leadership. In the end, McConnell blinked. His naked political gambit was uniting uniting Democrats to carve out the debt limit from the filibuster, which would have eventually led to the end of the filibuster in general. He saw the writing on the wall, and he caved. But the deal McConnell and Schumer made is just to delay the debt limit fight until December, which is also when government funding runs out. This is becoming a trend. Congress always delays all of these crises to the last minute every year, setting up pre-Christmas showdowns. 
because that pressure of lawmakers wanting to go home for Christmas makes them more amenable to making deals to just get things done and move on. Now Democrats have until early December to get their own house in order and pass the two infrastructure bills, because if they don't, they'll for sure lose control of Congress next year, and they will deserve that outcome. Not that Republicans have done anything to deserve getting control back. In other news, COVID nearly doubled anxiety and depression among Americans, according to new CDC data. Anxiety and depression severity scores are one and a half to two times what they were in 2019. According to a Pew Research Center survey, about a fifth of U.S. adults still experience high levels of psychological distress, especially adults under 29, those with lower income, or adults with a disability or health conditions. The takeaway here, let's be kind to each other out there and build each other up and support each other rather than being jerks to everyone we encounter. We all know there's a lot of that going around. In related COVID news, Pfizer has applied for emergency authorization for its vaccine for kids ages five to 11. It's currently being reviewed by the FDA. After that, authorization will be sought for kids ages six months to five years. Parents with young kids are stuck in a limbo period right now where much of society is going back to normal, but they can't quite do the same because they can't expose their unvaccinated kids. It's a challenging time. I suspect that's partly why many companies are not calling their workers back into the office just yet. The pandemic continues to have other impacts on the economy as well. Experts say you should do your Christmas shopping and Thanksgiving dinner shopping early, as in yesterday, because supply line and labor delays are causing ships to pile up in the waters outside the country's major ports. Prices are going up and shelves are emptying out. Let's take a look now at snapshots of international national, and California news. In international news, over 130 nations agreed to a 15% minimum global tax rate following years of negotiations. Countries such as Estonia, Hungary, and Ireland were obviously opposed to raising the corporate tax rates because they had lower tax rates, which attracted international businesses. This agreement helps level the international playing field. It will be interesting to see the implications of this agreement in the coming years. In national news, the House committee investigating the January 6th Capitol attack has issued subpoenas to several Trump associates, such as Steve Bannon, Dan Scavino, and Cash Patel, among others, all of whom have said they will not comply. The committee said they'll look into criminal referrals and noted that the Biden Justice Department will not be as lenient as the Trump Justice Department in pursuing refusals of congressional subpoenas. In California news, Clumps of black tar are washing up on the shores of Orange County beaches after the recent oil spill near Huntington Beach. Investigators believe a ship's anchor ruptured an underwater pipeline, which could have actually happened up to a year ago. This has called into question the practice of oil drilling off the coast of California. For local news, tune into my other show, News Wrap Local with Justin Chapman, which airs every third Friday of the month at 5 p.m. Pacific, on Pasadena Media's TV channels, streaming apps, and YouTube. Visit PasadenaMedia.org to learn more. For the next two episodes in October and November, I've got Congress members Judy Chu and Adam Schiff lined up. You won't want to miss that. Let's patch in our guest, author Giles Milton. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Giles is the internationally best-selling author of 12 works of narrative history, in, uh, including Nathaniel's Nutmeg and Churchill's Ministry of Ungentlemanly Warfare. 
He's also a fellow of the Royal Historical Society. He's out with an excellent new book called Checkmate in Berlin, The Cold War Showdown That Shaped the Modern World. It's a story about the race to seize Berlin in the aftermath of World War II, which led to the launch of the Cold War. Uh, you know, I love this time period, and th there's tons of content and coverage of World War II, of course, but there's not nearly enough books, movies, TV shows about the immediate aftermath of the war and how what happened in those few years really influenced uh, a lot of what came in the later 20th century. So uh, why don't you start telling us about that and, and, and how you approach this story for a really not very well-known chapter of a very well-known war. Well, exactly as you said, I mean, there are hundreds of books published each year about uh, the Second World War, and almost nothing is published about this immediate post-war period. Um, and this period is so incredibly important because this was not just uh, when the future of Berlin and Germany was to be determined, but the, the future really of Europe and the post-war world all happened in this period. And much of the focus of, the, of how this was going to unfold took place in Berlin, which was one place where the four victorious powers were going to have to work together in the shattered ruins of you know, Hitler's former capital and try and work out a consensus for um, how the post-war world was going to be governed. And of course, it was going to be absolutely explosive. And uh, so Soviets arrive in Berlin in April 1945 as Nazi Germany is defeated, but the Americans and other allies don't arrive until July, nearly three months later. Why was there such a gap and what did the Soviets do in Berlin during that time? Yeah, this causes um, a monumental problem for the Western allies because um, Eisenhower has decreed that Berlin is not the most important goal. The most important goal for him is the destruction of Hitler's war machine. Stalin uh, thinks rather differently. He is desperate to get his hands on the great prize of the Second World War, which is uh, Hitler's, Hitler's capital. And so the Red Army goes uh, hell for leather across uh, central, Eastern and Central Europe to reach this great prize. And of course, as you say, they get there three months before the Western Allies. And this gives them um, an unrivaled uh, moment uh, in time to loot the city, to uh, take to loot all the factories of the city, to take away massive uh, what they deem reparations for all the damage that Germany has done to the Soviet Union. But it really leaves the Americans and the Brits at a massive disadvantage because by the time they arrive in the city. The uh, Red, Stalin's Red Army has been there for several months and is fully ensconced in, in, the, in, the, in Berlin. And, and there's suspicion really between the Allies from the beginning, right, and that built over time. So what, what are some of the things that the Allies and Soviets actually work together on? Well, it's important to realize that the, the big three, uh, which is uh, Roosevelt, uh, Churchill and Stalin, had met at Yalta, the Yal famous Yalta conference in February 1945, really to try and decide how the post-war world was going to be uh, run. They, they knew that they'd won the war. It was just a matter of time, really, by that point. And one of the key things they decided was this, this, water, this unlikely wartime alliance. But this it very quickly became apparent 
that this was going to be impossible. Um, There there were simply too many suspicions between the powers. They 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 each had their ideas of what they wanted to do. And in particular, Stalin, by uh, May 1945, was pretty much in control of everything he wanted. All the territory he coveted in Eastern Europe, in Central Europe, Poland, and in Germany was already in the hands of the Red Army. So if you like, he was was the big victor at the end of the war. And it it was really for the Americans Americans and British to push their way into Berlin and and try and stake their claim on what on what was left of the spoils of war, right? And and so how did the uh, the the Potsdam Conference uh, differ from the Yalta Conference? What were the dynamics at the Potsdam Conference? Well, the big difference uh, with the Potsdam Conference, which took place in the summer of 1945, shortly after victory in Europe, was that one of the big differences was that President uh, Roosevelt had died. Um, and been replaced by the rather inexperienced uh, President Truman, who virtually never left America before, had no um, very inexperienced in foreign policy. And also Churchill, Winston Churchill, the other sort of great leader um, on the Western side, uh, lost the election halfway through uh, the Potsdam Conference. He went back to London and he didn't come back. He was replaced by the new Prime Minister, Clement Attlee. And this left Stalin as the only one of the big three, the big wartime leaders left, and he was a brilliant negotiator, and he pretty much got what he wanted um, out of the Potsdam Conference and came away feeling pretty victor- victorious. And already the Americans and British were sort of scratching their heads thinking, perhaps Stalin's got the better of us on this. And of course, time would prove that he had. Right. And so tell us about some of the uh, the characters in the story. There's Frank Howland Mad uh, Howley, uh, uh, Ruth Andreas Friedrich, a journalist who wrote a contemporary account. Uh, Walter Ulbricht. Tell us about some of those those characters. Yeah, so my favorite character, and really the main character in the book, is the American commandant of Berlin, or the West of the um, American sector of Berlin, who was, as you say, called Colonel Frank Howling Mad Howley. He was kind of an all-American cowboy who dropped into the city and was determined to run the American sector with a rod of iron. Now, he came to Berlin thinking that the Germans were the enemy, as he wrote in his diary, you know, I came to Berlin thinking the Germans were the enemy, but I very quickly realized that the Soviets were now the enemy. And from day one, he sort of declares a very personal war against his Soviet opposite number, who is General Alexander Kotikov, who is the commandant of the Soviet sector of Berlin. And these two men will go head to head for the next four years in this ferocious battle. And what I particularly loved about telling the story in this fashion was um, that your... the sort of it's like the microcosm of the bigger story. This is the big fallout of the big players in the post-war period, and tell it through the individual personal stories um, of particularly of the commandants of Colonel Howley and his Soviet opposite number, General Kotikov. And and Ber- West Berlin, of course, is in a sea of Soviet red in Soviet-occupied Germany. Um, and so uh, the uh, at one point the, the Soviets blockade Berlin. And there has to be a massive airlift, which is this pivotal moment. Tell us about that. Yeah, I mean, you almost need to look at a map to imagine just what a precarious state Berlin is in, because 
the German capital is deep inside Soviet-occupied Germany. And it means from day one that the Americans and British are entirely dependent on the single road and rail link that links Berlin, their sectors of Berlin, with their sectors of, of occupied Germany. And they realize that if Stalin was to cut these road and rail links, they would be in serious trouble because all the food and supplies and munitions um, required for the 2.4 million people living in their sectors and the garrison troops, the British and American garrison troops, would have to be brought in, well, the only alternative would be by air. But, you know, this is a huge logistical exercise. Um, the absolute minimum subsistence level to keep Berliners alive um, is, is four and a half thousand tons of food every single day. A Dakota plane, the, uh, the plane being used at the time, could carry two and a half tons per, you know, per flight. And so you just get some idea of the enormity of the crisis facing the Americans and Brits if they're going to keep their garrison alive and, and of course, the 2.4 million people uh, under, their, under their charge. And thus begins the Berlin airlift. Now, Truman and his advisors are saying, hold on a minute, this is totally impossible. But Colonel Howley and uh, his team on the ground they reckon it can be done, and thus begun begins the Great Berlin Airlift. And you've got to picture this, uh, planes coming in from across the world. The Americans bring in planes from, you know, from Alaska, from Hawaii, from everywhere in America. They're brought into the Western sectors of Germany. The Brits as well, from all over their empire, from India, bring in their planes. And they start flying supplies in from, from Western-occupied Germany into Berlin, the two airfields in Berlin that are become, going to become the absolute lifeline for those Berliners trapped inside. You know, I like to see it as a, like a medieval castle with the, the drawbridges have been raised. They're stuck inside this castle and those supplies have got to be landed into those sectors or everyone is going to starve to death. And they drop candy, which is kind of this propaganda coup where they sort of win over the hearts and minds of, of uh, West Berliners as well. Yeah, this is a fantastic story. Um, one of the guys in the in the American Air Force, Gail Halverson, who is still alive, he's he's now over a hundred. Um, he sees all these children gathered around um, Tempelhof, which is the airfield in Berlin. And he feels so sorry for them that he drops a ton of candy down to them, and um, and then the next day, you know, the first day there's ten children, the next day there's thirty children, the next day. There's 100 children, and he's dropping more and more candy. And um, then he gets hauled up uh, in front of his senior commandant, and he thinks, oh, my God, I'm going to get in real trouble now. But no, the Americans realize this is a fantastic propaganda coup. All the newspapers are you know, reporting it. This is a good news story, and it looks good. You've got uh, smiling American pilots uh, dropping candy to smiling uh, uh, Berlin children. And they, 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 they realize, rather than you know, stop this operation, they're going to expand it, they start dropping candy into the Soviet sector to the absolute fury of the, uh, you know, uh, General Kotikov. It's it's a, a masterpiece of propaganda and beautifully manipulated by the Americans. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, and you know, what happens in this time, of course, uh, Berlin continues to be split and the Berlin Wall goes up in 1961 and, and um, uh, leads to the rest of Cold War history. Um, well, it's just a it's a it's a great book. Everyone should go read it. Uh, Checkmate in Berlin. Thank you so much for coming on the show. I really appreciate you taking the time to come and, and talk with us about your book. Well, thanks for having me on. It's been a great pleasure. 
Thank you all for tuning in. If you need recommendations for Goodreads, check out Peril by Bob Woodward and Robert Costa. These guys don't need any help from me to promote this book, but it is a must read for everyone who wants to understand what happened in the final year of Trump's presidency and the beginning of Biden's presidency. That said, I I found the book to be a little simplistic. It glosses over some, some really important stories with a few quick sentences where I expected them to go more in depth with some as yet unreported information, but they didn't in some cases. Still remarkable reading about the danger that Americans avoided experiencing just a few short months ago. And there are a lot of anecdotes and scenes that we haven't heard elsewhere, so it's worth a read. Also check out The Berlin Wall, A World Divided, 1961 to 1989 by Frederick Taylor. I know I've reached middle age because I can't get enough of this time period of World War II and the Cold War. As you can tell from my interview earlier, I especially love the story of Berlin in the second half of the 20th century. This book is a deep dive into the history of Berlin before the Second World War, the aftermath of the war, which is what Giles Milton's book covered that we talked about earlier, and then the construction of the Berlin Wall and the ramifications of that for West and East Berliners. That's it for this episode. Thanks for watching. Stay tuned for new episodes of Well Read once a month. You can find this show on YouTube and the Passion Media TV channels and streaming apps. I'm Justin Chapman, signing off. Learn more about my work at justindouglaschapman.com and sign up to receive my email newsletter to get updates on what I'm working on at justinchapman.substack.com slash subscribe. And remember, A life well read is a life well spent, so go read a book. Till next time.